A reading from the book of Moses called Exodus, Exodus 33, 12 through 23. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, in your sight, I and your people? It is not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people from every other people on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. A reading from the Psalms of David, Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and dripping of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also for presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke, Luke 2, 39 through 52. When they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. 
And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the caravan, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature, stature and grace with God and man. A reading from Peter's second epistle, 2 Peter 1, 1 through 15, from the NASB. Simon Peter, a bond servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence, for by these he granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is, that is in the word by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in brotherly kindness, love, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in truth, which is present with you. I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that laying aside my earthly dwelling is imminent as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you'll be able to call these things to mind. 
This is the word of our Lord. All right, uh, hopefully you have an outline that says Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity. Then on the second line in a little bigger and bolder, Chapter 2, Grace-Based, Chapter 2C, I'm sorry. Chapter 2C, Grace-Based versus Performance-Based Approaches. I'm debating on having a Chapter 2D, but I'm trying to uh, not uh, necessarily... uh, do more than a couple weeks on each of the 15 emphasis. Well, next week we will have a uh, PowerPoint or what a pro presenter or whatever the program they want to use that'll have the 15 emphasis on it in back there. And they'll kind of, I think we're going to put like five em- emphasis per slide and change the slide every couple minutes so you can kind of know where we're going. This is the second of 15 emphasis that we're looking at for the idea that uh, today's Christianity, although it has given the most lip service to being Bible-believing Christianity, uh, probably in the history of Christianity, it has in fact followed the Bible the least of, uh, of probably any version of Christianity in the history of the church. And so, and that would even include uh, the subject Catherine was talking about today, that uh, the, the church prior to the Reformation was probably more biblical in a lot of ways than our, in our uh, church. And so we think uh, what the church needs is something bigger than the Reformation. The Reformation took a couple issues too far and took most issues not far enough and neglected uh, quite a few issues altogether. And so, uh, you know, what we're proposing is that Christianity needs a rethink and uh, that we need to study the scriptures thoroughly to, to do that rethink. And uh, it needs uh, some pioneering communities of Christians that are willing to rebuild in a more biblical kind of way. And so um, we, uh, the first emphasis of the 15th was what it means to love God. And I think we did that one in only one week, didn't we? Or two. Did we do that in two or one? I think just one. So this is our third week on uh, finding grace-based versus performance-based approaches. Now, uh, the first, uh, the first um, week we kind of looked at the whole idea of, of what a performance-based approach to walking with God is. And that, that is something that's kind of deep in our fallen nature. And a lot of versions of Christianity in our day, and a lot of versions of Christianity in various centuries, have been uh, more performance-based than grace-based. Uh, the scriptures are quite grace-based, so we, we looked at that a little bit for a week. And then uh, I believe we looked at uh, the idea of that grace comes from knowing Jesus, and uh, we looked at two... Uh, words for knowing, we didn't really get into the Greek word gnosko and, and so forth, but um, we, uh, and I had sent ahead another handout, but I don't have that one apparently. So I was going to give you the Greek words for them, but um, the point is simply this, that there's a, a kind of knowing that's, uh, you might say, is more cognitive, more theological, more scripture, it has to do with our knowing about God. And that's quite important. Uh, we have to have like a proper understanding of ideas like the Trinity and the dual nature of Christ and 
the attributes of God and so forth. Um, but we also need to know God experientially by his spirit. And it's in both kinds of knowledge that grace is found. All grace is realized through Jesus Christ. And all grace comes about from knowing Jesus in both of those ways on a greater and greater basis. The more we know Jesus Christ, the more grace is released into our life. And we're going to kind of look at what grace is today. So why is this grace so important? Well, so there are um, the most common uh, definition for grace in the church today is grace as unmerited favor. And uh, that we don't deserve the grace of God necessarily, but that he gives it to us freely and he chose to give it to us freely. And that is, a, that is a part of the definition of grace. So we're going to look at that for a little bit by looking at a few scriptures that bring that out. The first one is uh, uh, John fifteen sixteen. 16. Uh, I, I should mention that Ephesians 4 says that we have all received grace. John fifteen sixteen. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So think about that. You, uh, most people, you'll hear testimonies and uh, people will say, I've been searching for truth all my life and uh, last night I found the truth. You know, I received Jesus. The truth of the matter is that's not true. Uh, we We have been running from truth all of our life, but God by his grace revealed the truth to us and drew us into his kingdom anyway. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. So we are actually uh, hiding from God as Adam and Eve did after their sin. All fallen men are in that posture toward God. And he works sometimes through the family you were born into, uh, various circumstances, the preaching of the gospel, and so forth. But he, he works to draw you to himself and make you willing to receive it. Okay, so Jesus said again, but you, uh, you did not choose me, but I chose you. It's in your notes, John 15, 16. And appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That should be in your notes about uh, two-thirds of the way down, or a little, about an inch below the punch out for the middle pole, <laughs> right under Roman numeral three there, point one, grace is unmerited favor. So again, you didn't choose Jesus, he chose you. Think about that. The more, uh, I would say that you haven't made very much progress in your walk with God until you've come to realize that. If it were up to me, I would be still hiding like Adam and Eve did from the presence of God. So that's, that's huge. Ephesians 1, 3, 3 through 8. Ephesians chapters 1 and 2 give us quite a bit about the gospel, by the way, uh, over and over. Uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us from, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should, would be holy and blameless before him. 
In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he sparingly gave to us. Oh, my battery, which he lavishly gave to us. You know, we tell the story of the prodigal son, and uh, like many of the parables in the Bible, that's one that's particularly badly named. Um, most, most of the parables are the names that we give them, kind of miss the point of the story. And the, the, the story is not at about the prodigal son at all. It's about the prodigal father who, uh, who, who uh, received the son back. And prodigal actually doesn't mean like bad or wayward. Prodigal means extravagant to the point of wastefully lavish. And so um, Catherine thinks I'm la- prodigal about my fish tanks. <laughs> so, uh, you know, um, the story of Luke 15, if you want to look it up for yourself, Luke 15 is the prodigal son. But if you started the first two verses of the chapter, it starts with the fact that the Pharisees and scribes were mad at Jesus because of the kind of people he was receiving, accepting, and loving. They were environmentalists, as all performance-based people are. Whenever you're performance-based, you'll be focused on don't hang around those kind of people. And don't hang around those kind of places. Uh, and it's about like how you dress and what you, who you, where you go and, and that sort of thing instead of the condition of your heart and your lifestyle and so forth. So um, the, the Pharisees and scribes were upset with Jesus because he was walking by grace towards the wrong kind of people, people who didn't have their life together. People who were sinners. And that was who Jesus made feel comfortable. And actually, uh, being a mature Christian is about being walking and living in a godly way among people who aren't godly and expressing the fact that, that God is, is wanting to put his love on you just how you are. Not after you get your life together, but... God wants to love you just who you are and how you are, just like the old Christian hymn, Just As I Am. So grace is a lavish thing that is, that is very undeserved, and that's an important part of the definition about it. And that gets into a doctrine that the scripture readings touched on today uh, called election. God chose us before we were willing to choose him. Romans 3.24, which after it says that, uh, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God in verse 23, verse 24 says that being justified as a gift 
by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. We kind of think, like even when we sin, we don't confess our sin and just get back into the Christian race. We think we have to grovel a certain amount so that we can convince God that we're really serious about not sinning the next time. (laughs) And uh, so we go through all these kind of uh, emotional gyrations or whatever, to, you know, like to, to try to convince ourselves that I really didn't, really don't like cheesecake. <laughs> I just eat too much of it because I, I don't know, but I really hate eating too much cheesecake. Well, the truth is I, I love eating too much cheesecake. That's how I got to be this big. But uh, <laughs> it wasn't just cheesecake, though. It was French fries. So I, had, I never go over to, to the campus ministry house anymore because Stephen Leopold is always making French fries. <laughs> and I have yet to eat one of his French fries because I, I cannot stand anything except temptation. <laughs> so um, I just don't put myself in that sort of situation. All right. Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. Isn't that good? Like, and you could, you could take that same principle in that line and, and translate it to anything wasn't because of any endearing quality at all that God chose us. In fact, the, uh, the Bible compares us to a lot of uh, very unendearing things in our uh, pre-Christian state. Um, some of which I won't go into today, uh, so I can keep uh, a PG rating. Uh, but the Bible doesn't have a PG rating. You know, it you know, compares us to excrement and worse. And yet God loves us anyway. Be, but it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh of Egypt. So a very important, we could preach whole sermons if we wanted, on the idea of God's free grace and how undeserving we were and are. And we could, I could uh, try to be as eloquent as I know how to be, and I would fall very far short of really expressing the heart of God in that truth. I could, I could never do it justice. So that's uh, pretty amazing when you think about it. And that's the most popular understanding of grace. But there's even better news than, uh, than I'm capable of giving since I'm not capable of fully describing that truth. The better news is that there's more to grace than that. And in fact, that's such a small part of grace. That would be like uh, saying that Daniel Williams is a young man in his early 20s. That would be true. But that would miss the point that he's engaged to Christiana. That would miss the point that he's going to graduate in December. That would miss the point that he's an engineering major, that he's a member of Grace Christian Fellowship, that he sometimes teaches at 930, that he was born, he has a brother named Caleb, and all sorts of other facts about, uh, 
about Daniel Williams. And so I would have, if, if I said Daniel Williams is a young man in his early 20s, that would be true, but that would be less than 1% of the definition of Daniel Williams. And defining grace as God's undeserved favor is so important that I can't even possibly do it justice, yet it's less than 1% of the full definition of what God's grace is. And the, the even better uh, idea is that great grace is God's empowerment to do his will, to be Christ-like. Do you know that God created you to be like Jesus? And you are totally incapable of doing anything about that whatsoever. You can't even be 1% like Jesus. Yet God is, is going to make you completely like Jesus. And in fact, Paul tells us that the reason, he's speaking to Christian leaders and Christian churches about what we're doing, what, you know, why do we do all the things we do. We do it to present every man and every woman complete or mature, perfect, full in Christ. And the word for, for complete there is the word that integer comes from. God wants to make you completely like Jesus so that uh, if you were going to you know, pick Robbie Johnson or John Gray or John Luke O'Gayan, you would the only way you'd be able to tell that they're not Jesus is they don't look on the outside like Jesus, although we don't really know what Jesus did look like on the outside. But uh, so... Uh, but the truth is, uh, God wants to make us amazingly like Christ. And God has an abundant, great will for your life that goes beyond all that you can ask or think. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man all that God intends for his sons and daughters. God's, God's enablement or his empowerment to, is to equip us, to transform us by his glory, for his glory, to do his will, is beyond any preacher's abilities to describe. So grace is something so big that if we spent the rest of uh, our lives trying to describe the empowerment that God is bringing, we couldn't do it justice. So here's a couple verses that bring those things out. Acts 20, 32. Now the context here, by the way, in Acts 20, I, I love Acts 20 because this is, uh, you know, I, I sometimes uh, fantasize about stuff that's stupid, or whatever, but you know, like someday, maybe I'll come back from a trip to Hyderabad, or and I'll be like 85 or 87 years old, or and I'll, or maybe, and maybe the Lord has revealed this will be the last time I'm going to Hyderabad. I, you know, so uh, when I'm saying goodbye uh, to the Dayton Grace Christian Fellowship, I know it's the last time I'm ever going to say goodbye or something. This is kind of what Paul is doing in Acts 20. The Lord has shown him that he's never going to see the Ephesian church again. 
And some of you have uh, done enough with leading people to Christ, or you sometimes know this kind of thing if you've had children. There's like, if any of you who've had children know this, there's this kind of love God gives you for your children that's just beyond anything you could describe or imagine or ever hope to, you know, to have experienced. Uh, I remember that I, you know, really wanted to have a son, and uh, and I and we decided, even though the 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 uh, technology had just come into existence for uh, what are they ultrasounds, so that you could now know the sex of your baby while you know while you're pregnant, we decided because it was such new technology, like that's cheating. <laughs> so we decided not to know until our kids were born. And so I was really expecting this guy named John Paul to come out. And, uh, I, and I was expecting him to be born on August 19th, and, uh, because my little brother had died on August 19th. And Catherine went into labor, and her water broke, and they had to have the baby on August 18th. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? And uh, so the baby came out on August 18th, and it was this beautiful little girl named Carla. And it took me about less than a half a second to totally change my mind and be so glad I had a daughter and so excited and so filled with love and, and everything else, I could hardly stand it. And it, so God's love toward us is, is beyond anything we could ask or think or understand. You probably can start to experience it a little bit if you've actually led people to Christ and discipled them into maturity and so forth, or if you've raised kids. But what Paul is going through in Acts 20 is he's, he's birthed this church in Ephesus, Acts 19, 1 through 6 gives us, and uh, 1 through 7, gives us an overview of the birth of the Ephesian church and started with these 12 guys that Paul leads to Christ and into the baptism in the Spirit and so forth. And then this church grows and it becomes uh, one of the most famous churches in church history. Uh, Timothy was at one time the senior pastor in Ephesus. Uh, John, the, the writer of the Gospel of John, was at one time the senior pastor in Ephesus. And uh, Paul uh, has uh, a great feel for this, and he knows by the Holy Spirit that he's never going to see these guys again. Now, I, I can't do that justice. So whatever you've really, really loved, you know, whether you've had kids or uh, whether you've discipled people, whatever, maybe, maybe you've spent your whole life uh, becoming great at a sport. And uh, you know that you're never going to play basketball again. I remember when I uh, decided at age 35 that uh, taking 14 pain pills just so I could run full court basketball because I, I loved it. I loved basketball when I was young to the point that I sometimes wondered if God thought I was in idolatry or something. Like I, I played full court basketball four to five times a week. And our team strategy was we would run the other guys off the court. Like we would run, push the ball up so hard, so fast, for so long that the other team just gave up because they couldn't keep up anymore. And uh, I loved basketball. I used to dream that someday I'd be able to slam dunk. That, and that was a dream. <laughs> you know, I'm still hoping that in heaven, you know, I was just talking to Logan yesterday about like, wonder how... 
like our glorified bodies is going to affect sports in heaven <laughs> when everybody can slam dunk. Uh, uh, anyway, I don't know how to do justice to this passage, but that's the background. When Paul says, now I commend to you to God, like he's, Paul is struggling, he's struggling for is, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die and I'm going to leave these people how can I be sure that they're going to stay faithful to God? How can I be sure they're going to be all right? You know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, like you, I, I love to read uh, a lot of history, and it's kind of like, you know, in World War II, so many people's families were ripped out of their arms and were, never got to see their loved ones again. And Paul's thinking, I'm never going to see these guys again the most important thing is that they stay clean, you know, tight with Christ, right? So what, is, so what does he say? He says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are being sanctified. What he's saying is, I don't have anything more important I could give you. I'm going to give you the scriptures. And my hope for the future is for you to walk, to live in the word of his grace. To be able to build it up. To be built up in the scriptures. To, to enter into the inheritance that God has. The inheritance that God has for every Christian is, is again, beyond all we could ask or think. It's, it's so far beyond what we could ask or think. Acts 4.33 says, With great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was on them all. Romans 1.4-5, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. Now, we've made faith something cerebral, intellectual, abstract, and, not, uh, and, and doesn't bring results. It just brings excuses like we think, because I'm saved by faith, I can just do whatever that guy wants. But biblical faith brings about obedience. And it brings about an obedience that we would be totally incapable of. It, you know, if you've walked very far with the Lord at all, and you and I were to say, I want you by your own strength for the rest of your life to do what God wants you to do. Hopefully, you would see that's a hopeless request. And grace is actually able to make you stand. It's able to make you obey God's will for your life. I always tell the story of when I first became a Christian, I remember I was just... Uh, quitting drugs and some things like that. And I remember one night I was reading my Bible really late into the night. And, you know, I, I turned off the light and I slid down under the covers. And I remember in the darkness going, Lord, I just want to do what's right. I just want to do what's pleasing to you. And I remember I actually sat back up and turned the light on because I was so surprised that that came out of the depths of my heart. I was like, I want to do what's pleasing to the Lord. I knew God was at work in my life then, because like, that had never been on my agenda before. 
That was not something I would have put in my day timer. Of course, I didn't even have a day timer back then. Like, for God to change your heart so that you actually want to do that which is pleasing to the Lord, and that's really what's in the depth of your heart, to the point where you're going to actually start to do something about that, that's an amazing transformation that only the grace of God can do. If that comes out of your heart, you should be surprised and, and, and thankful. First Corinthians 15.10 says, But by the grace of God I am what I am. This is Paul speaking about his own ministry. And his grace toward me did not prove vain or worthless, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. He's saying, I actually worked really hard because of the grace of God. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. You know, uh, people, there's not a lot of Christian teaching about money. And unfortunately, a lot of Christian teaching about money is about uh, things that benefit the preacher who's preaching it, like, you know, like why you should tithe and give more. But the reason work is such a beautiful thing, and the reason uh, callings and, and vocations are so important is because the problem with not having any money is you're always spending all your time worrying about your problems with no money and trying to do something about the fact that you don't have any money. And one of the blessings of having money to the point where you have it in abundance is you can't really help people without it. The reason the Bible says to owe no man anything except to love one another, when you're in debt, you're very limited in how much you can give. Right? So the reason God wants to give to you abundantly, he wants to give you better ideas for your vocation, a better career path, better education, all the things that you need to do better in life is so that you can be more generous. If you don't have anything, you know, you don't have anything to give. Now, I don't say that so that we should be condemned about if we don't have much. Because God's love for you doesn't come at, have, doesn't have anything to do with how much you have or don't have. But God actually wants to give you an abundance, partly so you have provision for other people. You know, uh, there's, there's no greater blessing than always being the guy who can pay for the pizza or, uh, you know... Uh, you know what I'm saying? Like, to be in a place where you have an abundance is, is a very wonderful thing that comes by God's grace. And it doesn't come by the modern prosperity gospel and all kind of nonsense like that. It comes from having, like, a good work ethic and good vocational ideas and, and you know, learning how to manage and invest money and so forth. And uh, money can be a great blessing, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 is actually a chapter about money. And Paul's, uh, I, I, I'm really not doing it justice to just read that verse because you read, read the whole chapter in the context of the whole book. 
2 Corinthians was probably the last book in the New Testament that I felt like I was starting to understand and come to grips with in my early Christian years. And a lot of it is because it's about like Paul's principles in ministry that his goal was to be able to not charge anything so that he could give more. I, I remember a pastor, a friend of mine, who was discipling me at the time. Uh, we were driving in the car to Indianapolis to, uh, to, to drop off a check to his broker because he said, you know, my goal is to have so many investments going well that I don't have to take the salary from the church anymore. And he eventually got to that point. And uh, in fact, uh, he, he had a 300 some thousand dollar house in Beaver Creek, which he sold and moved into this little dive in East Dayton so he could actually afford to not take the salary from the church that he was the pastor of. Different, not, a, not our church. And I thought, how practical. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you all, having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance for every good deed. That's not, not just about money. It's about things like wisdom. You know, I've been many a time in a, in a situation where someone's getting advice or counsel and so forth, and all I can say is, I'll pray, because I really don't know what to say. You know, Hebrews 4.16, I don't know why I don't have that one in bold. Uh, it says, therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may find mercy and find grace in time of need. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. Do you know there's grace to never be bitter or unforgiving? There's never any reason to be bitter or unforgiving, no matter how much people have really uh, trashed your life. And one of the things that you, that you get to know as a pastor, a lot of times uh, we're in problems because of our, our sin has led us to various consequences that are difficult. But you know what? Sometimes people are in problems because other people's sins have led them to places that are very difficult. You understand what I'm saying? Sometimes people have had other people that were abusive in their life. And uh, so... Uh, there's grace to be above any kind of root of bitterness. All right, so um, I'm going to keep going a little bit longer, even though I, uh, that's, I'm probably at a good stopping point, but then I could spend two or three more weeks on this subject, and I don't really want to. Uh, this is a big subject. I, what I'm trying to do in these, in these 15 emphases uh, there's a whole series we have in our podcast that you can get the outlines for. There's six outlines, and there's 17 messages called Grace Upon Grace series. And it's probably, possibly our most important series we've ever done. It's a pretty big one. Uh, they were, we're named Grace Christian Fellowship on purpose because grace is so foundational to everything. Grace starts with acceptance uh, when we don't deserve it but it goes on to empower us to become a whole new kind of way of life and a whole new kind of person. Um, 
So actually, I'm just, I probably am going to stop, but I'm just going to introduce next week's topic, and I probably am going to stay on this grace, unfortunately, a little bit longer, because uh, I don't want the messages to be too long. So the next thing I'm going to talk about is, is grace delivered, and here's what I mean by this. Um, the, if you were to go back and read the Reformers and the Puritans, and, uh, you would see a phrase quite often in their writing called the means of grace. Uh, long before I had read theology from other people, and I was just studying the Bible uh, as a young Christian myself, I, I came up with the, the, the phrase tools of grace. I didn't know the phrase means of grace had been a very used uh, saying for hundreds of years. And so uh, eventually I decided to change tools of grace to delivery systems of grace because I'm always trying to find a way to communicate it as clearly as possible. So here's, here's something I want you to listen to. Every one of us has running water in our house or apartment. And we turn on the faucet and water comes out. And we don't think that much about it. But actually, a very complex delivery system brought that water to your house. It, you could go all the way back to God started with evaporation happens over the oceans, and then uh, it causes uh, moisture to, to form in clouds that go over the continents, and eventually it comes down in the form of rain. We could go back that far if we want. But we'll start with this. Somewhere, uh, some city, Fairborn or Dayton or Beaver Creek or whatever city you live in, harvested that water from an underground spring or a lake or a river or somewhere. After they harvested that water, they cleaned it up some. Now, various cities have various standards of how much they cleaned it up. Uh, I'm told that one time I studied this, it's been a while, so I don't know if this is up to date, but at one time about one-third of American cities met, met the federal minimum requirements for the quality of their water, and two-thirds did not, um, which is why I never drink tap water. So um, um, after they cleaned it up more or less, <laughs> uh, they pumped that water up into a water tower because water, the principles of hydraulics are simply this. Water always seeks its own level. If you take a uh, a U-shaped tube, and you pour the water in one side, it rises up both sides of the tube equally all the time. It always seeks its own level. And so when the city used a pump to pump the water up to a water tower, that water tower is taller than your sink. It's higher in regards to gravity and sea level and whatever you want, point of reference you want to... Uh, to use, and it goes down through pipes down from that water tower under the ground throughout the city, comes in through the water meter of your house, which is usually underground. If you live in a, one, uh, a house with no basement, it's usually at ground level. If you live in a house with a basement, it's usually in the basement. And usually if you have a, you know, a modern house, the pipes are hidden behind the walls, so you don't actually think about it much, but it could, the, those pipes go up through your walls, and they go to your sink, 
And they're attached in such a way that when you open the spigot, water comes out. It comes out because the spigot is lower than the water tower. And it doesn't matter if it's miles and miles of piping. As long as the spigot is lower than that water tower, whenever it's open, the water will flow out. Now, that's a pretty complex delivery system of grace, of water. Likewise, we, the, the whole point of Christianity is to grow in grace. That is to grow in the knowledge and experience of God through Jesus Christ. And so next week, we'll look at the delivery systems that God brings grace to us, which have to do with three inextricably intertwined things. Inextricably intertwined is a very important phrase there because you can never separate the one from the other. We can talk about the three as different things conceptually, but they're all actually intertwined all the time in a, in a way that you can never uh, separate them from one another. So they, the grace of God comes through the person of Jesus Christ through both intellectual, scriptural knowledge of him and spiritual experience of him. And that comes through the word of God, the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit, and God's church. And always when you're growing in grace, you are always experiencing the grace of God through the person of Jesus Christ through those three things. Now, one last concept, and then we'll pick it up there next week. If you diminish any of those three things, it will greatly impact your ability to experience God's grace. So, for instance, if you're thinking about the church is less than the biblical church, you will have less experience of God's grace because you're not in a place in his church where you are getting the maximum usage of grace. If you have less of a knowledge and experience of the Holy Spirit than you should, then you will have less of an experience with God's grace. And if you have less of an experience with the scriptures than you should, then you will have less of God's grace. And life doesn't work except by God's grace. So many times we're struggling with being an old curmudgeon or maybe we're bitter or maybe we're full of hurts or insecurities or whatever. The answer is growing in grace. And to grow in grace, you have to come into a proper relationship with all three of those things at once. And that's what we're going to look at next week, the three delivery systems of God's grace. Amen. Let's